We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome back to Sod Talk Radio. Happy New, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Um, this week we're talking with Robert Kirkconnell. He's the author of American Heart of Darkness, Volume 1, The Transformation of the American Republic into a Pathocracy. Robert has taught high school level education for 14 years. And before that he was a decorated combat veteran who served 27 years in the U.S. Air Force. So um, let's welcome Robert. Hello. Hi. Welcome Hi, to the show, Robert. Hey. Well, thank you very much, and I'm uh, delighted to be here. This should be a good time. Yeah. Well, um, as, as anybody who's listening probably knows, having read the description, uh, the, the show is basically about um, just an interview with you on specifically on your book, as, as Neil just mentioned, um, American Heart of Darkness. Um, it's a foreboding title. It is. It kind of sums it up. And the, the reason I like the book a lot is because it's kind of it's unique in that there aren't many other books that deal with this particular subject, i.e. America and the history of America in this particular context and also in in this, in the breadth of the scope that you deal with it in, because uh, as you say in your book, it, it's been more or less rotten or set up to become what it is today from the very beginning, oh, yeah. from the founding fathers. Um, and and there aren't many other books that deal with that in such a broad scope, in the sense of they they, they show that people other books tend to just pick on one particular aspect of of the history of America. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I, I actually like it and why why I think it's. Uh, it's, it's a very good book for the kind of lay reader who isn't, um, you know, who isn't focused on one particular aspect but just wants an overview. It's kind of like a people's history of America as it really is, yeah. you know, from beginning to present. Yeah, there, a lot of people go on and on about the founding fathers and don't realize how, how actually they, they, they were pretty rotten a lot of the times, you know. I mean, it's, uh, nobody really deals with it. They kind of don't leave that alone. The American Revolution was pure and wonderful, and America had good startings, and it's just only now has it started to go south. Was, was that what you kind of, obviously that's what you intended to do, Bob, when, when you wrote the book or when you had the idea for writing it? I, you know, when, when I first started uh, thinking about it, I, it was uh, due to the, uh, some of the experiences I had, as you read about in the uh, military, where I ran into uh, when I was a logistics uh, specialist, and uh, and I used to research uh, questionable travel and illegal travel and the use of military aircraft, and I ran into uh, I was asked to investigate parts of a a drug case that involved uh, smuggling heroin and human remains. And in human remains. Obvious, yeah, it killed in action out of Vietnam. Yeah. Whoa. And. And it, um, 
it became obvious to me that our our paradigm of these people smuggling heroin and so forth are uh, mafia types and organized crime and uh, from Sicily somewhere with a big mustache and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, South Americans, uh, Hispanic, uh, whatever. And uh, the reality of investigating that case led me to believe that uh, there were agencies of our government that were complicit in it and uh, in in some cases uh, played a role in smuggling heroin into the United States, uh, specifically the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, The State Department was complicit in it and uh, had to have uh, known what was going on. There was uh, quite a bit of heroin coming in, uh, a lot of it on military aircraft. And I found out later on that uh, the CIA would... uh, track pilots and so forth to bring it into the United States and uh, presumably on the uh, that they they were doing a test case and uh, doing a test run and they they were busting really bad guys and by the time these pilots figured out that they're actually involved in drug smuggling uh, the CIA would get rid of them and oftentimes put them in jail and charge them with the same offense that they told them to do, and then uh, the courts were complicit in the whole thing and would rule that uh, the CIA, any information about the CIA uh, having contacted and uh, hired these pilots in the first place was considered irrelevant in court and so forth and put them in jail mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. That this whole There was this whole undercurrent of the drug trade that the reality of which was far beyond anything that uh, and, and, uh, that we've ever seen or imagined, and totally un-American, as mm-hmm. un-American as you can get. And uh, um, You said that you were, you were directly involved in that investigation into... Yeah, although I, I played a pretty minor role. It was just the manifest documentation and so forth that, uh, of that case. It was a... Uh, C-5 that came in out of Thailand that broke, and I was in Okinawa at the time, and it was on the ground more than 24 hours where Japanese customs gets involved and so forth. And there were, uh, my understanding was that there were uh, caskets on their transfer cases, GIs that were uh, stuffed with heroin. And the, uh, uh, when they, well, that was discovered by when the plane became operational, and they went to load it again, there were two couriers that were with these human remains, and both of them had disappeared, which is rather unusual. Mm -hmm. And they did some checking, our people did some checking, when I say our people, it was Air Force logistics people, and found out that one of them had flown to Hawaii, and the other guy we never did find. But Japanese customs got involved in that, and uh, there was heroin in these bodies, and uh, to make a long story short, we did catch one guy who they had to take him into federal court in Washington, D.C. area. It was, it was actually in Baltimore, Maryland, and, um, and prosecuted this guy. And the evidence disappeared uh, out of U.S. registered mail. Uh, hmm. that, uh, and I know that for a fact because I had come up with the evidence, and these were manifests and uh, documentation, travel documentation orders and so forth 
and uh, disappeared out of U.S. registered mail. And this kind of leads you to believe that uh, there is somebody besides uh, Al Capone type uh, involved in this operation. And, if they're uh, using military craft, then yes. That's what it points to. Pardon? If, if, well, if, if, it, if the, this heroin is coming in on yeah. dead GIs, on American aircraft, and it's being, the manifests are being signed off, all according to you yeah. know, a lot of procedure, then, of course, the, it's... Uh, <clears throat> well, no matter how you slice it, you can't really imagine... You know the mafia, quote unquote, as it's as it's sort of you know portrayed as having enough power to uh, to use uh, <laughs> military aircraft to smuggle drugs. You know, I mean that's not the way they're yeah. portrayed. So either we've been misled about the uh, about the mafia, or we've been misled about the military. And I, I would choose the latter, actually. Yeah, it, what? Was, uh, it was it was it was obvious. Um, that there were uh, high that went to high places, and so you know over these years it wasn't only my conclusion. Everybody that worked on this was just uh, befuddled. I mean, astounded. It was uh, it was really spooky. And yeah. uh, over the years, none of us forgot about that. And I found out later on this was before the internet. This was like 1972, and uh, it went into 73 in the court case and so forth. I, I found out that uh, we some of us reconnected. You know, one in particular is a DEA agent named, named Mike Levine. He's the author of uh, several books, but uh, Deep Cover is one of them, and uh, mm-hmm. The Big White Lie, I think, is the other one. And uh, and on, on his own, he went into, uh, when he was a DEA agent, and even before that when he worked for Customs and Drug Investigations, where he found that uh, every time he got close to a really big uh, bust, uh, CIA would pull him off of the the case. <laughs> and um, in, in this case in particular, he was in Thailand, undercover, uh, working where this heroin is coming from. And the closer he got, uh, he was right before he was about ready to bust some really big players. And uh, the CIA called him in and said, we're concerned about your uh, health and welfare, and uh, sent him back to the United States. And uh, Mike says, you know, for one thing, he says, how did they know I was even working on this case? Hmm. And, um, and, and my book uh, led from there, because I, I, the question in my mind was, uh, if they, and by they I mean the United States government and uh, instrumentalities of it would do this. What else would they do? Yeah. And uh, and it, it opened my eyes in a sense that I would see things that normally I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't have seen had this not happened to me. And uh, not 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 to me, but to all of us had this case not happened. And uh, so I got to look, and, and and this is where this book came from. And um, I didn't plan on, uh, you know, the seeds of destruction that you had talked about that uh, were uh, in Jamestown uh, from the very mm-hmm. beginning. You've never been able to deviate from militarism, racism, and genocide. I, I didn't plan on coming to that conclusion or illustrating that. That's where it led. When I looked at mm-hmm. the dark side of America, 
when I, when I followed the leads, uh, once you go into, uh, for, from any direction, it could be drugs, it could be assassinations or whatever, but you go into the heart of it, uh, the dark heart of it, and this is where it takes you, and that's where it took me. And uh, that's why the, the book is, uh, you know, a whole lot pushed into one book. Uh, it's certainly not single subject. Because I get into assassinations, I get into the illegal drug trade, uh, wars, uh, genocide, racism, the Civil War, all these things, and, and they all come from that. And that's mm -hmm. why I titled it what I did. Bob, um, to stick to this uh, drug trafficking topic before skipping to other topics, sure. from reading your book, obviously, this drug smuggling practices were not an uh, isolated case. It seems that uh, it's pretty endemic, systemic, uh, one of the main activities of CIA. So can you elaborate uh, on the magnitude of uh, drug smuggling? Yeah, I, um, I was astounded between the CIA and the State Department that uh, compiles figures on drugs and war on drugs and all these things and where drugs are grown, how they get into the United States and so forth. Um, between these two agencies, uh, they downplay the whole thing and have us really believing that uh, there are people like uh, Pablo Escobar and he's a big drug king and he's, he's the one that's doing it. And that these are independent operations when the reality of it is that uh, you know, our State Department will admit to a few hundred billion dollars a year, which is a lot of money, on the illegal drug trade, uh, which most of this money goes through Western banking, uh, Wall Street. And, um, and, and if you take uh, fractions of a trillion dollars out of that, uh, that money that flows through Wall Street, uh, you got big problems in the stock market, you got big problems in banking, you got big problems in industry. Uh, it is wildly profitable, and it is the ideal, drugs are the ideal product. People become addicted to them. There's your market right there. Uh, they're, they're very light and easy to conceal and not heavy. And, and, you know, six, seven times worth their weight, uh, cocaine and heroin and so forth, in gold. Uh, this is more valuable than gold and uh, e much easier to smuggle. And all you have to do is bribe a few officials and so forth. Uh, and, that the, you know, some estimates go up to uh, as much as uh, $750 billion a year. Uh, in the Today. illegal drug trade, most yeah. of which goes into the United States. Yeah, there are oh, there are yeah. some authors that have traced it that much. I think it's actually more than that. And um, and, I, and I wouldn't be surprised that um, that it might really fund and finance a whole lot of things that uh, the American lifestyle and so forth. Even though we're in trouble, if you took that money out of there. Uh, forget it, man. I mean, we're down the tubes big time. Uh, sure. Profits on them. Pardon? No, yeah, we totally agree. Um, but I was just going to add in the point that isn't the CIA's official budget is about $50 billion, Isn't that right? Yeah. 
that that gets from American taxpayers. Yeah. And you're talking here about seven hundred and fifty billion up to that amount, and a decent portion of it is the CIA's black budget. So that kind of like it kind of dwarfs yeah. their official budget, and it suggests that what's really going on behind the scenes also is uh, also dwarfs what the CIA officially does. Yeah, and I, I really think that they don't do it for their their own gains. I think they're an instrumentality of uh, Wall Street and big business, J.P. Morgan, and, and all the rest that um, set the direction of what the CIA. They, they, the CIA does their bidding, and uh-huh. um, you know, ostensibly they work for the president. I, I don't believe so. I think the president is just a. Uh, another finger puppet in that, that whole uh-huh. game. And, uh, mm-hmm. The CIA is considerably more powerful than the President of the United States. And they represent the Rockefellers, they represent the Carnegies, they represent really big money and uh, and do their bidding, and I think drugs is part of that. Yeah, and it's, a good, it's a good explanation just for the people who are kind of, uh, people who tend to be kind of conspiratorially minded about this, you know, um like you just touched on a point there that if that kind of revenue was taken out of the system, i.e. if they stopped their long-term drug trafficking uh, operations, that it would have serious consequences for the American economy and therefore every American citizen. And it strikes me that this is probably a way that they kind of rationalize it or justify it to themselves, that ultimately this is benefiting the American people. Probably. I, although I, you know, I think that um, a lot of these people don't, you know, they might rationalize it uh, on an interview or something, or you know, if they're caught or whatever, mm. you know, they they might do that. But I don't think most of these. I, I think most of them are uh, pathological. They're psychopaths. They don't. Uh, okay. You know, but they. Uh, they I, they, I they really kind of... don't. Uh, care about anybody or anything other than uh, money and power and things like that, and that's it. Yeah, they don't even think as far as justifying it, or they'll justify it to the public via yeah. the president or, or on TV, as you said, but to themselves, they don't even think about it, really. No, no, I, I, I don't, don't think so. They don't think past their, their own noses, basically. No. Today... I, I think they're self-selected. The, the people that do this select people that are of like mind um, and um, just basically evil people mm-hmm. and they're running they're, they're running the United States and you know arguably the world most of the world yeah so this this um, the heroin trade that you became aware of back in 72 then comes well Nixon's in power at that point he declares the war on drugs the amount of drugs getting into the U.S. explodes as a result, the very opposite yeah. of what is allegedly intended. Yeah. And to, to fast forward to today, I was surprised to see the support come out, but there you go. It, it is there in plain view. On SOT, um, late last year, we had an article that's actually from the Business Insider. It is quoting a U.N. World Drug Report, and it has some incredible stats in it about the current big... Uh, what do you call it, cash cow of the drug trade, methamphetamine. Yeah. Uh, not, meth, not methamphetamine, meth, crystal meth, the, the, the meth, the thing that's even even more toxic than heroin at the moment. Um, 
it's like uh, 80% of the world's meth is actually consumed in the United States. Now, they pinned most of that trade on one, one kingpin, like you were referring to. They, you know, they bring in the, 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 a Mexican kingpin by the name of El Chapo Guzman. Okay, but in the small print, in the small print down the end, is that he's named by Forbes magazine as having been a high-level DEA informant since the mid-1980s. Yeah. I mean, hello, it's, it's not yeah. somebody out there doing this to us. It's one, of, one of our guys. It's one of our guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Um, I, you know, there, there have been uh, some things I ran across that uh, the history of the DEA, there were CIA operatives that created that. Uh, and, you know, to me, the DEA, the, the funding they get, the war on drugs, uh, now, now they're looting the American Treasury of umpteen billion dollars a year uh, to put on this phony <laughs> war. And uh, probably the only people that they're after or get prosecuted are uh, are their competition. It's the CIA and the uh, State mm-hmm. Department. Uh, the whole, you know, their competition. And, uh, you know, to even think that there are hundreds of tons of uh, meth, uh, heroin, cocaine, all these things coming into the United States uh, every year, you know, they, they're probably not in a condom shoved up somebody's rectum. I mean, that would be a lot of condoms. <laughs> uh, a lot of people. You know, you can't, <laughs> and who are they catching? You know, somebody <clears throat> Stuff the stuff in the tire coming across the Mexican border, when probably with an after agreement where you can put a seal on a truck in Mexico and that truck can go all the way to Canada without being inspected. Mm. Uh, you know, if it was me, I'd be putting it on that truck. And, do, you, um, do you have any? Do you have any idea, Bob, of when the CIA got into the drugs trade? Yeah, and it was way back. Uh, America has been, you know, as you probably read in my book, America has been involved in it, even when we were uh, at odds with the British and, uh, you know, uh, the British and the United States uh, were the clipper ships and so forth that uh, in our history books it said that uh, these were really fast ships and good for shipping and so forth. Uh, they were primarily used to, uh, and they were an American invention, uh, mm-hmm. to smuggle opium uh, into China, and they were the only ship that could tack into the monsoon winds from the Bay of Bengal all the way to China and make it in a matter of a few weeks rather than months. And um, and those were American captains, uh, American ships, and the British started building these clipper ships. And uh, all of this, there was a continuum of this, that um, uh, the, the CIA in particular, though, I, I think uh, really got into it with, uh, let's see, it was uh, General Chenault's Flying Tigers that were uh, supporting the nationalist Chinese against the communist Chinese. Uh, and um, and they were using, uh, Colonel Chenault, they was using, or General Chenault, they were using the, his logistics uh, support that was p- presumably for parts for his flying tigers and so forth, and 
anybody that watches old movies will see these. You know, they're they're the planes, the P-40s with the uh, tiger teeth on them and the tiger eyes and so forth, and they're big American heroes. Well, they, they were using their logistics uh, with the national Chinese, nationalist Chinese who were flying in uh, food and weapons, mostly weapons, and they were flying out uh, the national Chinese uh, opium uh, to market. Mm-hmm. And the CIA bought this airline from them. Uh, it started to go bankrupt, and uh, Chenault sold it to the CIA. That became Air America. Mm-hmm. And Air America in Southeast Asia continued to do the same thing, uh, and that was a CIA uh, proprietorship. They own uh, Air America. And mm-hmm. they were doing the same thing with the uh, Hmong tribesmen and so forth, uh, fighting against the uh, North Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that started right away, you know, pretty soon after World War II, uh, that they were doing that, that they were mm-hmm. uh, smuggling... Uh, Heroin in when it was heroin out, and it was guns and and rice in, and uh, that was the secret war in Southeast Asia, in Laos, and so forth. That we think of the war in Vietnam, it was that whole region, and that was the yeah. core of it, right there. And you mentioned that it happened right after the Second World War, and I know you mentioned uh, Colonel uh, Priority Fletcher uh, Priority in uh, in your book, and Priority's books are his own books are very good as well. Um, those two of them, Secret Team, and another one called JFK, and some something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he he mentions that the CIA, or the precursor to the CIA, were were immediately after the Second World War were already setting up in uh, Vietnam and uh, that area, uh, and it, that's kind of suggestive of that the whole Vietnam War that 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 eventually evolved from that. Um, was originally all about just control of drugs or access to uh, to the drug production and the revenues that they produced and everything else is just kind of theater or was just built around it. Well, that that sort of stuff has been going on since the 1830s or before. Like like he was saying with the with the opium well, yeah. trade, they they realized real early on with China that. And the whole East was basically drugs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, just to put it in context, because people tend to think. Uh, when people hear of this idea that the CIA are running drugs, you know, the Golden Triangle and Vietnam and stuff and Air America, they go, they're kind of shocked and they think that that could never happen. But if people are able to put it in a context, and like like you were just referring to, Bob, they the whole thing started with the Opium Wars with the British uh, and the Chinese back in the kind of early to mid 1800s, um, were the British, basically with their um, East India Company, were producing uh, opium in India and then selling it as a commodity uh, to the Chinese because the Chinese apparently had a a particular taste for it or that was the the best market. And they were making large, large amounts of money from it. Mm. And then the Chinese, Chinese, uh, at the time, the Chinese uh, rulers at the time decided this wasn't... This wasn't cool. This wasn't good for the population because thousands and thousands of people were getting addicted to opium. Society was kind of falling apart. And then the Brits basically, uh, you know, bombed the crap out of them to yeah. force them to accept yeah. uh, the, uh, this influx from the British. Hello? 
Hello? Good idea, thanks. Since it appears that you should do that. Uh, well, there's numbers right there. Okay. Come back on here. Hi, we back on? We are. Uh, we can't blame it on... Um, we can't blame it on, on Blog Talk Radio this time. Our, our computer just went to a blue ah. screen and... Shut down. Uh, yeah, it was interesting timing as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about well, putting putting the drug trade in context in a broader in a broader historical context in, to the extent that any revelations about the CIA running drugs for the past forty or fifty years into America is not so strange in a longer context of the British having done it, you know, two hundred years ago. 250 years ago uh, in China and used it essentially as a weapon of, of war. A lot of people suggest that as well, that it wasn't just about the money that they figured, okay, well, you know, uh, this opium influx into China isn't really good for the Chinese uh, rulers and, and for the people and it makes them easier, more easily controlled. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that whole like, the idea of... of <laughs> things that people are becoming aware of today about the state of the world, putting it into a longer context is very useful because it gives people a better idea of Well from a yeah, from a certain perspective yeah. the trade kind of kind of funded the industrial revolution actually, you know. I mean, all those big industrial giants who were were pushing that stuff, they they made a lot of their money. Uh, East India Trading Company type people, you know, shipping and uh, smuggling. Well, not at the time they didn't have to smuggle it. They were it was all out in the open. I mean, it's a it's a fact of history what they did. I mean, they didn't even they didn't even take pains to hide what they were right. doing at the time. And what Bob shows in your book, and maybe you can elaborate about that, is that war and drug trafficking are intimately related. Yes. Yeah. I uh, I don't think there would have been a British Empire without opium. And uh, British had a nice little gig there because they made textile manufacturing uh, machines and so forth, and they shipped them into the Bay of Bengal area, uh, made money on that, uh, loaded the same ship with opium, went to China, made money on that, loaded it with silk and tea and whatever, and uh, came back to England and made money on that. They made money the whole way, and you could kick one of those legs out from under the stool it's all over, and um, and they uh, in polite circles it was called the business. Everybody knew about it. The, the British were smart in that they kept the drugs off their shore anyway. Yeah, uh, they, they didn't bring it in and uh, and give it to their own people. Uh, 
my take on it is that the Americans, by bringing it into the country, and, and especially selling it in inner cities and minority communities and so forth, they extract the wealth uh, and resources out of South Central L.A., Chicago, the big cities, and uh, disempower, especially African Americans, selling them drugs, um, extract the money out, uh, and let's go ahead and give them booze and guns and let them shoot at each other, and uh, whoever doesn't get killed we'll put in jail, and then we'll contract out the services of the prison to the same companies that are involved in this. And, and you've got this um, just looting of the uh, not only the tax money, the American Treasury, but uh, looting of our own communities and, and disempowering people and keeping them powerless. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's not an accident. I think somebody has thought all of this. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, America is the empire that uh, was kind of created in a certain sense, and you can see that uh, it's kind of been that way from a very early point in its history. Um, opium was, uh, at a certain point, an actual pretty big problem in the U.S., um, and then it's just continually morphed, so you kind of begin to wonder if America really is the, the superpower and if it's not some, some group of individuals behind the scenes, you know, that are just using it basically as a, as a drug testing ground. Yeah, and a, uh, a hyper-military state that you can use as for enforcement of anybody who gets out of line in the world. Mm-hmm. That uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, to me, his cardinal sins were uh, trading in euro dollars, for one thing, which uh, mm-hmm. we get real problems, the uh, United States does, if the uh, U.S. dollar is not the uh, national or the international currency, the world currency. And uh, and he was doing that, and he also uh, privatized uh, or nationalized the uh, the oil trade, and he was educating his people and providing health care and things like that in Iraq. And that was a dictatorship, a fairly brutal guy, but it was working. And uh, mm-hmm. we can't have that, so we went in there and hung him with the biggest rope in the world, just about. And, yeah. Uh, and put it on, you know, and 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 uh, put it out there. You know, this is what happens. I, I think that message was to Saudi Arabia and anybody else. This is mm-hmm. what happens if you get a lot out of line with us. Mm-hmm. And you show as well that Cuba and Fidel Castro were yeah. a major component of the drug supply chain management. <coughs> oh yeah, I mean, uh, I mean Cuba before Castro. Yeah, he. Um, the um, yeah, that was a uh, a, a drug conduit uh, for quite a while there. Be, you know, before Castro was in there, he shut down. That might have made you know a, one of the reasons that the uh, United States was so angry with him, or U.S. institutions were uh, in private enterprise, all the corruption and everything. But it was a uh, a drug transfer point to Miami and New York, all over the place that went through there. Um, I mean, it's pretty, it's really hard to get, I can understand why the average person in the street finds it hard to get their head around this kind of stuff and see it in the, see America specifically as having a heart of darkness or being the heart of darkness um, because of the propaganda and the mythos around America um, 
I mean, but but it's it's in a way you would expect people to really put two and two together a little more because I mean, in your book you say uh, you make mention of uh, the founding fathers and the different people who are involved in that, and later the, the writing of the Declaration of um, Independence, and you say that. Uh, in fact, many of the authors of the Declaration of Independence that declared that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The people who wrote that and have been, you know, uh, held up as, you know, the epitome of, of, of all that is good and great about America and even humanity were slave owners. I mean, that's, yeah. surely, surely kids are, in the U.S. are taught that. I mean, kids are taught about the Declaration of Independence and all that kind of stuff, but surely they, they know that these guys were slave owners as well, no? Well, you know, I didn't really realize that until, you know, uh, I was out of school. Uh, I was, so it's I not taught then. Grade right in there, they, they weren't, uh, it wasn't mentioned in our history books. Because I mean, right it there you have denied, a really... but it, they just didn't talk about it. Yeah, you have a really pretty stark contradiction right there. You know, I mean, how is if if you read about that in school, surely even the average kid would kind of go, isn't that kind of contradictory? You know. Yeah. But uh, but then again, in your book, you say that um, all throughout history and throughout the British Empire and the American Empire and the foundation of America, all of these excesses and, that you describe so so well in your book against the Native Americans and against the 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 South Americans are you know uh, that and against people all around the world, native people all around the world, that it, it was all justified at the time and even since and, and today that these people were kind of uh, uncivilized savages and therefore kind of was their own fault. Yeah, you know, I, you know and, and, and that goes way back. I think um, I found some evidence that he, even the Romans, with the, yeah. and they were the ones that portrayed the... Uh, the native uh, British you know, people on the British Isles uh, as being um, oh doing things like uh, I, I think the Druids I think is who these people were and they said they yeah when people get old they put them in a basket and set them on fire burn them alive well there's no civilization that does anything like that there are no people that did anything like that but mm-hmm. I, I think that was a portrayal these people are just really awful people and uh, you know we have to is rationalization we have to civilize them or uh, democracy now we say uh, instilling democracy I think the British was civilizing savages and it's pretty much all the same idea mm-hmm. vilify people before you kill them and then makes it easier because then their lives are uh, worthless anyway mm-hmm. actually the what Joe described this uh, lie about men being equal uh, goes back, as you say, to ancient Rome and even ancient Greece, where there was this myth of democracy, of power in the hands of the people. And actually, when you look at it, the people, it was only the citizen, maybe 1% one pe- one of the population, the rest, the plebeians, the slaves, and the barbarians had absolutely no right. So this democracy in the U.S., like democracy in uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome, was uh, an illusion, a lie. 
Um, yeah, Bob. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I I think that's true. That uh, that that whole issue. I think what was a little bit different about America was that um, America outright wanted to kill the Native Americans. They wanted to exterminate them. And I, I don't think the British, you know, as brutal as the British Empire was, they generally wanted to exploit and um, uh, control people. They have them do work for them or something. They extract resources or whatever. But genocide usually wasn't on the uh, on the plate. And um, I think with America, with the Native Americans and the uh, the, the true count of, of how many people is, is far exceeds anything that's even in our history books now. Uh, 18 million in North America, easily, and in all of uh, all of the Americas, South America, and so forth, it was exceeded 100 million people, of of which, um, you know, not only. Uh, you know, the uh, Native Americans went down to a few hundred thousand. I think it was about 200,000 from 18 million. Uh, this is genocide on a scale that, is, uh, you know, uh, that uh, Hitler took notice of and how we did it. And uh, what were uh, reservations, uh, we just call them concentration camps when it was... Uh, the Germans, you know, Nazi Germany did that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was, they just flat out, uh, you know, and my take on it, as you, as you read, was that uh, a lot of it had to do with the crops and the, the method of growing things that was far different from the Native Americans who could support a population, a large population, large cities. But their, their farming methods uh, were far different uh, and they they grew food among them, which meant they don't have to go steal somebody else's land. And um, in Jamestown, especially with tobacco, uh, you know, incidentally, a drug right there. They're going to make money on a drug from the very beginning. And um, you, you need a lot of land, and you need a lot of intensive. You need labor. Uh, so mm-hmm. that kind of drove, well, let's get rid of these Native Americans, take their land, import slaves, and uh, and work the land because it's more work than we can do, and it's more land than we have, so we'll do that. And uh, As you read, uh, that, that set the course in militarism to drive those two, racism and genocide, and militarism to drive it set the course. That was the wind in America's sails, and we've never been able to change course from that. Okay, so the seeds of today's pathocracy are are there in the beginning, and yeah, that was uh, that was the premise. Sixteen oh seven, Jamestown, with that little colony there, um, they that set the course. That set uh, you know there was slavery before that, but there were not people born into it. It was more like indentured servitude. Uh, mm. If Maybe you wouldn't be free, but your kids would not be slaves. And mm. Jamestown was the, the, where, where people were born into servitude and slavery, and uh, that was something unique. And these things, these decisions that were made 
um, you can trace a critical path of these these three elements, these three critical elements of the American uh, pathocracy that are coming to fruition now uh, and are, in my uh, estimation, destroying the country. Hmm. And, and for sure have destroyed the republic or, or any form of democracy. Uh, we have it on the books and we have allusions to it, but this is not a democracy anymore. No. Um, obviously, a book that interests us a lot, and yourself too, because it's incorporated into your your history of the U.S., is political pornology. Um, we can completely relate to how this one book can open your eyes to seeing things completely in a new light. And I've got to commend you for, for doing what you've done. I'm sure you can understand what I say that Ponerology, the book by the Polish psychologist Andrew Lobachevsky, is extremely dense, and a lot of people struggle to understand what he's saying, but I think when you've taken the concepts in this book and applied it to the history of the United States, it gives people a tangible, easy-to-understand um, application of, of what he was talking about. Um, and I think it's, uh, yeah, I just want to say, well done, because it's a book that needed to be written. I, I really appreciate that. That uh, It had a profound effect on me, because I was, when I was trying to figure out what were the essential elements of the macrosocial evil that was going on in our society. When you got uh, fascinating, uh, any transformational leaders of any kind, uh, and you, you have the uh, hidden drug trade and all of these things, this criminality, that uh, institutionalized criminality, and I just couldn't get my mind around how this happens. And uh, Lobachevsky's book, uh, Political Ponerology, the science of evil adjusted for political purposes, uh, just uh, illuminated all that and explained it. And it just It's like a puzzle that the pieces all of a sudden come together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, th he, I, think um, the I, I think the problem that people, uh, or the problem that you're kind of expressing there that you're trying to grapple with and that, most people try and grapple with is how all of these things, as you describe in your book, can have happened or can happen to today, uh, up to today, and, and get worse and worse as time has gone on. Um, in the context of the vast majority of ordinary people, generally being decent enough and not being of a of the kind of mindset where they just go out and rape, pillage, and murder just because they felt like it. You know, but but yet that's what's going on from the top down on our planet, and the the ninety nine percent or the, whatever it is, ninety four percent maybe, of of the ordinary people are just um, they're unaware of it, or it's somehow it it gets passed off in them, and it happens. Yeah, I I, I have found uh, doing book signings and so forth and talking with people. They're, uh, especially the white middle class, 
is starting to, you know, not a, not enough in my estimation, but they're starting to become aware of some of these things, or at least when they see it and read about it, uh, they're they're liable to, you know, entertain it before. Uh, they generally just reject it and say it's just crazy stuff. Um, you know, and that goes back probably psychology. I think that's called uh, cognitive dissonance. When you're confronted with things that threaten your fundamental belief systems, mm-hmm. uh, human beings will reject them. You and I will do that. Anybody will do that uh, because it's probably it doesn't fit into our schema of what's going on and um and so we we reject it It doesn't matter whether it's valid invalid uh evidence or whatever it's just now it's, it's off the table mm-hmm. and, uh, people are starting to question now though uh especially that white middle class that has thought they were privileged all this time and they have been disenfranchised along with everybody else uh they're starting to become at least somewhat aware maybe not enough but maybe we have to suffer some more before we finally wake up. But um, I've noticed people are interested in it, and uh, and they tend to, you know, the reason I wrote the book is because you and I talk about these things, and people look at you and just say you're a raving maniac, you know. And uh, I wanted to, to reference things. I wanted to cite things. I wanted to provide evidence. I wanted to back up what I was saying. And... Uh, and I didn't want to just be uh, running around talking about this stuff for the rest of my life. And uh, and that's really why I wrote it, because I, I wanted to get that, that word across. And um, and it was quite a journey. I mean, I ran into a political ponderology. Uh, yeah, and some people do have trouble reading it. You know, it's uh, I think it's a little more Eastern psychology than Western psychology and some of the terminology mm-hmm. is not generally used uh in you know in the in the west but um the concepts are there and they're the same and they're the psychopaths and sociopaths and all these terms that he used the concepts are solid and uh and that you know his point that you get about six or seven percent of a population that are psychopaths and they recognize each other, and they network with each other, uh, and they take over stuff. And they've done it throughout history, and he cites examples of it. Uh, you know, I thought uh, I thought it was groundbreaking, and I think that probably there ought to be, you know, and you would agree, I'm sure you'd agree, with, uh, considerably more research done on that that probably won't get done because it would need to be probably federally funded and you know you're asking people that are pathological personalities to fund uh, exposure of themselves. There's no way they're going to. Do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bob, you, about Lobachevsky, one of his main concepts is this notion of uh, hysterization cycle. How psychopaths yeah. take control of whole countries. And in your book, you explain how the sequence of schizoidal characters characters and um, characteropaths and psychopaths step by step take the control. You use the example of Leo Strauss and uh, neocons. And so can you explain the theory of the hysterization cycle and uh, give 
illustration with what happened in the U.S. Uh, during the 20th century? Yeah, I uh, I found that fascinating, and um, and I you know I think we started with those uh, as you described, where where you have these visionary people that uh, Lobachevsky's take on it were um, schizoids, um, and I think he cited I think Karl Marx and you know there were some others that uh, had these these visions because they wanted to create a society that they would fit into. And so they created these utopian type ideas uh, and so forth that were, you know, uh, arguably, you know, Marx had some pretty good ideas, really. And, uh, and I, uh, and there was, there was one of them, the father of the neocons that um, his name escapes me right now. Leo Strauss. Pardon? Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, Leo, Le, yeah Leo Strauss. And uh, a very unusual kind of guy that uh, that probably, you know, he, maybe there was something to what he said, but I thought he was pretty off the wall anyway, but... Uh, I, he might have had some good-sounding ideas and so forth, and then the uh, character of past take these ideas and twist them around to their own purposes, and um, and then the um, eventually the, there's a cascade of these personalities, and eventually you end up with psychopaths uh, running the uh, the country. And I, my take on it was that. Uh, Although, I, you know, I don't know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I couldn't say that uh, somebody like George W. Bush is a uh, psychopath and so forth, but I can say that um, this guy took the America in the wrong direction, and I don't think he feels a bit guilty about it. Uh, you know, as uh, Lobachevsky pointed out, these people are not very bright, really. They're very manipulative. No. Uh, and they they're, uh, they can use people, they can manipulate people. They're charming, uh, you know. Even though I don't think George W. Bush was even charming, I don't know. But um, you know, a guy like that uh, to be president of the United States that uh, that ridiculed and uh, uh, prisoners that uh, when he was governor. Uh, that uh, appealed to him for clemency on a death mm-hmm. sentence and so forth. And, and here's this guy thinking this is uh, funny and imitating him and mocking him. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not normal, you know? No. Yeah. I, and I, I don't think, you know, and I noticed uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the same thing with uh, Tukey Williams. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think I've got his name right. Uh, that uh, he appealed to Schwarzenegger or uh, clemency or something, and, uh, and put him to death. And I think he was the uh, the, the guy that uh, started the Crips, if I remember right, which was a neighborhood protection kind of thing when it first started. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've got a brother-in-law that's a judge that looked at the evidence in that case and says that Williams, he says, I have serious doubts that Williams even committed these murders. And uh, and he appealed for 
uh, I think it was clemency, you know, to commute his sentence or something, or life in prison instead of a death penalty. And um, Schwarzenegger writes uh, in, in, in his uh, decision in there, I mean, he vilifies the guy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would have expected maybe somebody that had normal, that was normal, would mm-hmm. say this is a very tough decision in this person's life, but I, I must oppose mm-hmm. the law in this case and, or something like that. But he takes this to tie into Williams in words that were kind of like, well, you know, you deserve it anyway. You know, you. Uh, mm-hmm. And it yeah. was just not, to me, I, it didn't come across as nor a normal human being that would no, do that. It's, well, it's not because I mean, I mean, what what he was doing was get like Bush was getting off on the power that he had uh, to, to essentially order someone's execution. Uh, someone yeah. who, objectively, there was doubts about whether they were what what they were they had done what they were accused of. And I know any normal human being would would, would feel that kind of a, a certain empathy and a, you know they would certainly be troubled over that kind of a decision, but certainly not have the kind of reaction that you're describing that uh, Bush and Schwarzenegger had. And that's I mean what kind of people get off on the power of killing other people? I mean that's. I mean, that's not even the, that's almost like kind of Hannibal Lecter, you know? So even though we see, we say that psychopaths aren't like the Hannibal Lecters that they're described as, there's an essence to that kind of a crazed killer in there, you know? But it's just well covered up. Yeah, and I think, you know, I haven't, I haven't read some of these things. It becomes aware to us in our consciousness. But I'm not too sure that most of the public actually picks up on that when they no. see something like that i i'm not too sure that uh, that it registers that this is an abnormal personality this is uh well, this is somebody you know and here's uh alberto uh is uh is attorney general uh alberto gonzalez that is Gonzalez. Yeah. Um, oh, Gonzalez. The guy, the first Hispanic uh, attorney general, and he makes a total ass out of himself uh, in that office. And it's just, it was disgusting to see him do that. And when he was in Texas, um, Bush didn't want to really review all these uh, these cases for uh, to commute the death sentence. So he have Gonzalez kind of uh, come in and do a 15-minute talk about why this person should die anyway or whatever. And um, here's Gonzalez, you know, the, uh, Texas with the uh, record setting. I, I think they were the top or near the top in executions. Mm-hmm. Uh, 400 and some, I think, during Bush's administration or something like uh, that. In your book, and, you uh, mention uh, in his six years of uh, governor of Texas, uh, he executed 152 prisoners, which is ah, much more than any other state. Yeah. yeah. And here's him doing this, you know, Gonzalez coming in and, you know, how comprehensive can this be? Who else was there besides Gonzalez? Gonzalez putting these cases together. Out of that number of people, you know there had to have been at least a few of them that were innocent. 
they say mm-hmm. no, but you know some of the things that have happened in other states like Illinois, where you had the governor say, "I'm not doing this anymore," because DNA has shown that a, a number of these people, more than you would imagine, are being put to death or on death row that could not have committed the crime, and they're convicted and appealed and whatever. And as governor, I'm not doing any of that. And he Mm -hmm. set all of those aside. But, you know, here's uh, George W. Bush. Oh, no, they were all guilty. They all deserved it. You know, you go take a nap. It doesn't bother him a bit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's astounding. Yeah, we might have... um, we we might have a a call here. There's a few calls that have, have appeared sure. uh, uh, on the line here, but but I'm not sure if they're actually calls because some people call in just to listen to the show. So I'm going to go ahead yeah. and try and see what's going on here. Sure. Thank you. Oh, I, I don't. Uh, you're, not I don't a you're not a caller. I'm just listening. All right. All right. Sorry. There you go. There's just that was just a listener, and I think we have this other one who's also probably just a listener. I, uh, are you listening also, caller? Hello? Sam, I'm just listening. All righty. <laughs> have a good discussion. Okay. It would be great if Blog Talk Radio could, could at tell least us. tell you that, yeah. And which they is don't. which. They don't. We yeah. need to suggest that then. Okay, Bob, um, you cite um, a much more modern study in your book that, you know, really strikes home for me as well. I think it's something like, it was quite an intensive study, um, and they found that 58% of Americans, ordinary Americans today, have more character, and they had a whole a list of criteria for what they meant by that. But, you know, basic moral character than the average U.S. president. That's taking all of them going back. I mean, that says it all. You know, the question that popped into my head when I read that was, what do we need leaders for? What do you mean? I I didn't quite catch the last couple of words. Well, if we're being led by people of lesser moral character, yeah. what do we need them for? Especially what when we, we look back at the sweep. Yeah. 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 I yeah I I was really astounded. It was uh, it was one author, and I think he was a uh, psychologist or a psychiatrist that had compiled all this information and. He had uh, most of the uh, modern presidents of, of having um, no character whatsoever, mm. and uh, and no uh, no sense of uh, right or wrong or any of that. And I, I think it was some of them. It was zero. Mm. And, uh, and I think that. Uh, what surprised me is that Democrats were actually lower than Republicans in that. And that, that really surprised me. And he said that if it hadn't been for Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, there, there would have been you know, pretty much zero in the modern presidents. Um, Indeed. Now, was, Jimmy Carter, in today's sort of overall narrative, Jimmy Carter is seen as a a useless one-off, nah, didn't do much. But he was the yeah. one little, one little, little bit of light in the midst of people who, like Reagan, you know, are fated as greatest president ever or next to greatest, whatever. I mean, it's just, but you actually, you even, you say in your book that 
it's the ones that get remembered, you know, as a general rule, who are some of the most psychopathic. I was astonished by what you said about Woodrow Wilson. Not astonished. I mean, I knew he must have been, well, in fact, I had thought he'd been played to be who he was, to do the things he did. But that, you know, inside he may have had good intentions. But you you said something quite different about Wilson. You, you think he was another one, like a psychopathic leader, in effect. Yeah, he was a, a one of the worst. Even uh, yeah, this is a horrible guy. I really didn't know that either until uh, you know I got to really researching what he did. And uh, here's a guy that comes into office and he runs on this peace campaign of uh, non-involvement in the European wars and things like this. And within a matter of months, uh, his administration is able to turn the American public into a Nazi-hating machine. Mm. You know, that, um, or a, uh, excuse me, not Nazi, but German-hating yeah. machine that... Uh, in World War One, and they put out all this propaganda about uh, Germans eating babies and all this kind of thing. They had posters up and mm. whatever. And um, it was obvious that he had the intention of doing that from the very start, as soon as he got into office. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what he did. He started working on it. Uh, that was a horrible guy. And mm. I, you yeah, know, yeah. I really didn't know that. I remembered him from my history books. As well, you know, he really had some good ideas. He tried to have this League of Nations for world peace, and uh, it didn't work out too well, but he's really a good guy. And uh, he was absolutely the opposite of... I I was astounded, you know, when I really did deep research into these presidents of what they were really like. There were facts of... Here's Ulysses S. Grant owned slaves. Mm. There were... uh, in the Lincoln White House, there were slaves in there. <laughs> yeah, like, amazing. Yeah, it was the one guy that really, because I, to me the American empire came right out of his head, and that was Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. And, uh, and this guy Say was... It ain't uh, so. But Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson is is like the founder of all things good, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, but you know, and in one he wrote another president and said that, um, and he used the word empire. He said that the Declaration, or not the the, uh, the Constitution, and no document has ever been crafted that uh, was so well fit for empire, American empire. Than the well, Constitution. Just... Bob, we, got, we have another uh, potential call here. Let me just check to see for a second. Okay, you're not a call okay, reader. Hello? Hi. I, I, uh, did you want to call in or are you just listening? Uh, I'm a caller, if that's me you're hearing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Do you have a question for Bob or a comment? or? Yeah, I have a few comments. Uh, this is Don from Massachusetts, and uh, hi, Robert. I really i am enjoying your book. I'm partway through it, and uh, I just wanted to <clears throat> echo the, you know, commend you for, you know, what you've done. It's a real model of objective history, um, you know, taking maybe a personal experience like you had in the Vietnam era and then 
following the threads without any any um, you know at least being able to disregard all the myths we've grown up with and everything. It's very rare, and uh, I really appreciate it. Everything you pulled together, all the different strands. Um, one comment I wanted to make: uh, you guys were talking about. Uh, you know, whether they, they mention slavery in school, that the founding fathers owned slaves. And, you know, when, when I went to school, they didn't. But um, lately they have. They can't get around it. It's a big issue. They brought uh, African-American voices into, into history books and everything. Um, but they have an a interesting technique. They kind of, uh, you know, say, well, yeah, it was a problem. It was a contradiction. But the rest of American history is about working that out. And, you know, then they use it as a segue to get into civil rights and the Civil War and everything and, and how we've, we've you know, the, the new myth is, you know, okay, yeah, we weren't perfect at the beginning, but we've been able to uh, uh, work out those contradictions and perfect the union as we go forward in history. So that, that allows people to feel good about it. So... Uh, it's kind of interesting how they're able to adjust um, to new facts and new perspectives, but still kind of keep the same uh, obscuring myths going in some sense. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. Was that, uh, I didn't quite hear, is that Dan or Don? Did I get it right? That's uh, Don. Don from in Massachusetts. And, uh, and Thanks for getting the book in the first place. I really appreciate that. And, uh, oh yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for your your observations there. I uh, yeah, it's it's revisionist history that um, in in my lifetime is I, I taught high school, and I'm teaching some things about like Vietnam that are in the book that are um, inaccurate. Yeah. In my own lifetime, uh, I'm seeing revisionist history, the uh, Bay of Tonkin, and uh, that uh, we were attacked by uh, North Vietnamese in the Bay of Tonkin, and that was the escalation of troops in Vietnam and so forth. All this is a fabrication that came out in the Pentagon Papers uh, a long time ago. That was not true. And here we are today uh, reading the same history books, and I'm supposed to teach this stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm telling my students I was there. It didn't happen this way. Uh, it's it's really incredible. And imagine what history was really like. Uh, you know, and I, I dug into it some, but um, imagine what it was really like if if had if they could uh, do revisionist history since Vietnam and change things around. Uh, and, and they've had hundreds of years now to change the founding fathers and so forth. These people are probably nothing like what they really were. Uh, although I will too, say, is, is, is that um, I mean, a lot of a lot of students find history boring, and I taught history a little bit when I was younger. And uh, the tragedy is, it's it's a lot less boring. It's actually very exciting if you teach truth and not not myths. It's the myths that yeah. are really boring, and the students mm -hmm. end up thinking, well, we know everything, and it's this you know great story, and somehow they turn it out. But I think. Uh, you know, if, if if teachers were allowed to teach more truth than they are, it would actually be a more interesting subject. Yeah, and um, no, I think you're you're absolutely right there. That uh, and what I did, of course, I was like in my you know sixty or something. What are they going to do to me? I, I just taught them what it really was. But then you you know you run into these things. They're saying, well, 
your kids are not going to do on this uh, well on the standardized test, which mm-hmm. is a standardized test of revisionist history. So you're just messing your kids up by uh, teaching them the right thing. And um, yeah, it, it's it's. Um, and I don't know if you got a chance to read the book uh, "Lies My Teacher Told Me." It's by a history teacher. A history yes, I did. Teacher. Very. Good. It's a good book. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. It was uh, it was really good. Oh, all right. Thought, um, some some years ago of of getting back into teaching, I went on to a different path in in my career. But I thought, you know, I'd like to teach high school history. So I took the uh, Massachusetts teachers test. And a couple things about that was interesting. Um, you, you could see the, you know, the ideological, you know, push in there. There were questions like, you know, what is, it basically came down, there was a multiple choice. What's the, you know, best economic system? There was, you know, free market capitalism. So, like, okay, I know what they want me to answer. Um, it was actually a pretty sophisticated test. It was very difficult. I was impressed by it, you know, the way they put it together. It wasn't easy to just guess all the answers. Um, and, you know, so I did pretty well on it, and then 9-11 happened, and I said, you know, I don't really want to, you know, and everything went crazy in 2002. It, it seemed like, you know, it was going to be total overt fascism instead of covert fascism, and everybody was so wound up with nationalism and craziness that I thought, I, I don't want to be in a, I don't want to be in a classroom, you know, having to either bite my tongue or get into big trouble, so I, I bagged that idea. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a probably yeah. probably a good choice. Yeah, it would have been nice to have summers off. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, when we've got our best people, uh, and and you know the, these guys that are whistleblowers, uh, Manley and, uh, and this, this other fella, and and these are our most courageous our most moral and ethical people, and they get slammed in jail. And the people that are, uh, what they reported was war crimes, uh, uh, pedophilia in government agencies and and things like this. And those people are doing really well, you know. So if you're Mm -hmm. corrupt and you have no principles and you're basically a criminal working for the government, uh, you do quite well, but if you're a moral, ethical person and do the right thing, the kind of thing that they taught us in school that we were supposed to do, uh, you go to jail. Uh, mm-hmm. This upside down, this is uh, inside-out democracy. This is not democracy anymore. It's not a republic anymore. It does not represent the people. Mm. All right, Don, thanks for your call and your comments. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Talk to you later. Thank you. you yeah, just I wanted to bring bring up a, a, or maybe expand on a point uh, that or a question that Neil asked uh, you, Bob. Was uh, the question was why do we need leaders at all? You know, given that they're given given their nature that is on display, why do people need leaders, or why do we need leaders? Why do we have leaders? Uh, it seems to me that there's something in the normal human psyche that makes them kind of naturally, almost subconsciously, have this need for some kind of leadership to take control of their lives, you know? I mean, I kind of, I look at it in terms of religion, for example, and, and why religion is so popular. 
uh, even if people don't get very much out of it, people still, you know, and, and why people respect governments, you know, and why even when governments are exposed in the mainstream media as being corrupt and evil and stuff, people will cut them an awful lot of slack. You know, people tend to be, ordinary people tend to be very reluctant to want to just get rid of it all or, or you know, the idea of, of there being social chaos or nobody in charge seems to strike a kind of a terror into um, into into the hearts of a lot of ordinary people. And maybe this feeds into this major problem that we have where people will accept corrupt and evil leaders if the alternative is, or if they're told the alternative, or they think the alternative is something like chaos and just social disintegration. Yeah, you know, there must be. I guess you know we're we're looking for parents all our lives, even when we're grown up. Yeah. Somebody to tell us what to do or something, and then complain. Exactly. About yeah. Because that's. I mean, that always strikes me as a fundamental problem: people's reluctance to kind of uh, really take action and, and and do something about it. And I think it goes to the heart of of. Uh, this problem that we have on the planet where, where these people are entrenched in power, okay, they, they employ all sorts of deception and lies and people would never believe that they would lie so egregiously in, in such a massive way and do the kind of things they do and then lie about it. Um, but, I mean, there's that aspect of people being, people, ordinary people projecting their own morality onto the people in power. But I think it's that combined with this need for leadership that really is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for the disaster that we have right now, you know. The, yes, uh, along this line. Of, uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu. I saw him on an interview one time, and they asked him, uh, he said, wasn't that really difficult to pretty much overthrow the South African uh, government is what they did. And um, he said that wasn't the hard part. He said the hard part was convincing the African people, South African people, um, having them make the decision and the commitment that they really wanted to be free. He said Mm -hmm. that was the hard part because we we buy into uh, all of these things. And he said once they made that decision, the rest was easy. Hmm. He said over, overthrowing the government and bringing down that government was not the hard part. Uh, I found that really interesting in that, you know, how many, including me, uh, how many times, you know, I, I chose a military career um, mm-hmm. that is a career uh, toward destruction, really, is what, we break people and you know break things and and kill people is is what you're you know how did I end up in that situation you know well you know there was a draft and I didn't want to go into the army I went in the air force or whatever I didn't want to go to Canada and you know uh, hide for the rest of my life or whatever um, you know so I did but I didn't have to do that uh, I reenlisted several every time I got out there was a bad economy or something I couldn't get a job. So I go back to that security of at least I'll be taken care of. And um, and so I end up with 27 years of, of basically doing a real good job uh, at things that are destructive uh, in the mm-hmm. long run and don't really contribute to society. Um, and um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of us do that. 
we buy stocks and we buy uh, annuities and things like that. Uh, people that are doing things with our money we don't agree with, they're destroying rainforests or whatever. Uh, but as long as we're making some money, we don't want to see that. Uh, we don't like uh, Walmart's hiring practices or employment practices, minimum wage, these people on food stamps. And that's our kids now, you know, that are... Uh, that are uh, drawing food stamps because they can't uh, make enough money to support a family. Uh, but we're shopping at Walmart because their stuff is maybe a few cents cheaper than Costco or somebody else that, uh, that treats their employees right and uh, pays them well and so forth. But we're right there, you know, saving our two cents out of a dollar or whatever. Uh, fast foods, uh, you know, they don't pay these people enough. It used to be entry-level job. Now I think the average uh, fast food worker is 29 years old. These people have family support. And get, you know, on $7.50 an hour or something, they can't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, here we are eating in that fast food restaurant. Um, all we would have to do, we wouldn't have to fight anything. All we would have to do is stop supporting uh, and stop financing our own enslavement and, and our own... Um, uh, disempowerment. We're paying for that. We're going along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's with our consent and our advice and our support that we're doing that. And, and well, I mean, uh, it, it's amazing, you know. Well, yeah, what, you, what you're suggesting kind of is that people need to have more of a conscience about the kind of things that, that you're describing, you know, or I mean, people are aware of people on, you know, homeless people in the U.S. and, um, you know, people on minimum wage being treated almost like slave labor and stuff, but they go ahead and go to those restaurants and eat there, and it's almost like people's conscience, their normal human conscience, has, has been uh, kind of whittled away or diminished in some sense. And it seems to me that that process of um, kind of diminishing the conscious, uh, the normal conscious of the average human being has has gone on for the past, you know, well, for a long time through successive generations of people, but... I mean, for example, it seems to me that you can get people to maybe in some abstract way lose a bit of their conscience or the way that they actually think about things by getting them to agree, you know, through lies and deception, getting them to agree to conscienceless acts and ideas. Like, for example, you know, the whole idea of torture uh, and torturing prisoners and stuff that was a hot debate several years ago in the U.S., you know, and, and, and nobody stood up and complained about it and... They kind of accepted the American people were, and people around the, in Western Europe as well, were cajoled into accepting the idea that torturing another human being was okay. And as soon as they accept that, they lose something. And then you see the results of it in, in, in ordinary society and in, in, in smaller ways, you know? Yeah. It, um, when I'm talking to people, there's also... You know, and it, uh, there's a sense of powerlessness. Yeah. That uh, we have no power. That people have no power. In a, you know, it, we could vote anybody out we wanted to. And well, you don't really have a choice. No, if you're going to vote for a Democrat or a Republican, you don't have a choice. Mm. But you know, you can write in Mickey Mouse if you want to, uh, or. Write your, I mean, you can vote for anybody you want. Um, 
and people say, well, you know, you have to. You're throwing your vote away unless you vote for these uh, Democrat-Republican. Well, the, the history of that um, is that third parties in America the, uh, have had a profound influence on uh, any of the things that, you know, Social Security is really a good thing. Uh, and that yeah. came out of the progressive movement, uh, and it came out of the uh, populace, and uh, they couldn't win a lot of elections, but they could win enough votes to where neither of the other candidate uh, would win a majority uh, without their support. They could not get enough electoral votes to become president of the United States unless they had uh, the electoral votes of, uh, of these third parties. And so the third party doesn't win the election, but they say, if you want our support, this is what you're going to do. And uh, that, that history is not known in the United States. And uh, people, you know, when I tell people that and give them some examples of it, they say, you know, I didn't know that. These are educated people. These are people with college degrees that uh, don't know uh, the history of third parties and uh, these movements in America, uh, much less the, the labor movement um, and what the labor movement actually uh, was the rise of the working middle class in America something that was totally different than anything that happened before uh, were labor unions. And they say, well, you know, they, they're ineffective now. Yeah, well, in the last 15 years or 20, well, since Reagan anyway, uh, you're, um, late, you know, I think it was 40% roughly of the workforce was unionized, and now it's down 17%. Uh, the... Uh, the uh, uh, the average uh, the productivity of the average uh, labor union uh, employee uh, the efficiency of them was far exceeded anybody else in the world dollar for dollar uh, the the unions trained people um, assembly lines and so forth uh, and and they've been destroyed this is what has destroyed the middle class largely. Mm. Uh, in America, and you get people over and over again say, you know, those unions are ineffective. Yeah, they're ineffective when they're not there, that's for sure. Uh, if there's anything that we need in the United States more than anything is organized labor, uh, mm -hmm. a resurrection of organized labor, that would put a stop to a lot of this crap. And, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, well, we, we have a... Get us to believe that. Yeah. We have another call here, Bob. Uh, I'm just going to go yeah. ahead and take it. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. Florida. Florida. You're calling you from Florida? Yeah. 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 What's your name again? Elvira. Hi, Elvira. You got a question or comment? Yes. Um, I just want to say that uh, what I, um, I am being targeted by... I'm 63 years old. I was a human. I'm a human rights guy, and during that time, I, they started targeting me. They wanted me to stop protesting over the toxic mold, toxic, you know, just different uh, human rights uh, issues. And I also was in the anti-war movement. And uh, then they shut me uh -huh. up. I ended. I ended up in Broward General Hospital. 
And so they wanted to shut me up, so what they did was inject me with a toxin. And uh, I've been going to the drugs, Los Angeles, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New York, you know, seeking medical treatment. But everywhere I go, they what they do to me is, they, and I right now I'm having internal bleeding on top of all that. And everywhere I've gone, what they do to me, they grab me and they throw me in a mental hospital bleeding. Then they had to release me and send me to Springfield Hospital in, in uh, Morton, Pennsylvania, Springfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after all that, you know, that was the first time in all, and, and since 2004 I was able to even get an IV in my arm. So now, fast forwarding, now what's happening is I come back to Florida because I said this is where it started and this is where it must end. But when I, I went to a doctor's office, I was so disturbed by what had happened to me in uh, in New York and in uh, in uh, Pennsylvania that I haven't been hadn't been able to even go to a doctor although I'm bleeding. And so when they they chemically spray me, you all you have to do is go to freedomfhs.com. We're trying hard to get these issues up on the table. Aaron Alexis was also a member of this that human rights group. What's mm-hmm. going on in America and around the world is a shame. Is mm-hmm. um, the B2K? You 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 heard of the B2K, right? No. It's called Voice the Skull. Just look up Jose Delgado, what he did to his bulls. Well, oh, they're yeah. doing it to humans. Yes, we are human experimentations. And mm-hmm. right now, I need to be in a hospital, but I can't. I dare not go near one because I may disappear. Now, this is a shame, and I'm 63 to have to live this way. But I think the world should know what's going on. And we got these bad doctors, bad social workers that, that's keeping this thing alive, and it needs mm-hmm. to be exposed. Now, you can either what, believe me. What kind of human okay. rights were you specifically, what kind of human rights were you advocating for? Uh, teaching the poor how to help themselves. I, was, I started out going down into Overtown and Wynwood in Miami, Florida. But uh-huh. then they chased me out by the time I got to uh, Wynwood, and they because they don't want us down there with, with the poor because that's where they hide to do all their dirty work. And who's they? Who's chasing you? The politicians. Uh, you understand? And if yeah. you don't take my word, just 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 try doing something in the poor neighborhoods and, and see what happens. You mm-hmm. understand? And then yeah, just, I can uh, imagine. Oh, do you have? You have a blog or a website people could go to. It well, sounds like a story I, I needs be, to get I up be there. The, uh, I'd be on the uh, freedomfchs.com dot com, mm-hmm, and also okay. stopthecrime dot net. We're trying hard to get this out, and Clinton know, knew about it. He even uh, granted some people, you know, help for this thing, and you can mm-hmm. find that on unwittingvictims.com. John Green, you understand. And this is a shame, and it's not just an American problem. It's a worldwide problem. And mm. people really need to wake up to these smart meters. Uh, the, uh, they spray in, and uh, I can't think because they spray me, too, and it gets in my brain. I, I don't know what to do. Are you, talk, are you talking about chemtrails? Chemtrails, yes. Not just chemtrails okay. they spray in on us. What do you mean they spray on, on you? Directly on you? Uh, they come up to my window, and they spray in, in the house. And whatever it does, it, it takes my hair out. It burns my skin. Help me feel like I'm on fire. 
and I'm being cooked from the inside out. It's horrible. Hmm. And then I took her to a hospital. I, huh? Do you report this to the police? Oh, the police know all about it. The police, when I was in Morton, Pennsylvania, the police was the one that was keeping me safe. Mm-hmm. You know? And then in my medical record, it says chemical spray. And then all you have to do is look up Yvonne Hiller. Yvonne Hiller worked for Kraft at, uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was also complaining about being chemically sprayed. Mm-hmm. And nobody would listen. Nobody listens to you when you, when you try to get this, these things out. And so what Yvonne ended up doing, she killed two people and wounded, wounded another. And she's in prison, and they were the ones who were spraying her. Hmm. You understand? Well, Alvaro, we're gonna we'll we'll definitely take a look at the the links you mentioned and have a have a look into it. And um, uh, that's a pretty bad situation you're in. And I hope really hope you can find a way to resolve it in some way. But you know, the, the most important thing for you is to keep yourself safe. You know, uh, yes. more than anything. You know, I mean, you don't want to put yourself out there too much to the point where you know you expose yourself to any kind of dangers in that way because you know uh, it's not worth it ultimately. You know, okay, so. But- you heard of Aaron Alexis, right? Yeah. Well, he was also on freedomfchs.com. And those people who try to say that we're mentally ill, I think they're mentally ill. They're mentally ill because they're not willing to listen. And all you have to do, as I said, is go to those websites, and you can hear, especially on freedomfchs.com, you can hear the people talking about what's happening to them as they speak. Now, I, I want to thank you for listening to me, and I hope okay. that you don't just listen, that you look into it and contact Derek Robinson at Freedom FCHS and try to do something to help them show us how to shield from these things or something. Okay, we're, we're, thank you we'll for take a, we'll, we'll take a look, look into it, Environ. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you, you for being here. Bye-bye. You too. Uh, well, there you go, Bob. That was. I don't think that was a comment or question directed no. at Bob. However, it did make me think of something. I mean, experimentation, so-called experimentation, the CIA, mind control, the, the depth of this. I mean, I don't know what's going on today, but you can only imagine what was formally shut down in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. We well, know sure. now the scale of it. Um, Bob, you touched on this in your book, of course. Um, maybe, maybe we should talk a, a, little, a little bit about this and how it was kind of, it ties into what happened to the U.S. right there in World War II, where you've got all these Nazi scientists coming into the United States and taking with them their research and the kinds of gross experiments we've heard about taking place in Germany. And there's a kind of a seamless continuity where they just set up shop in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, the effects of which we see, I mean, we still see today. Yeah, I, um, I got into a few cases uh, in my book. I found, you know, since I published the book, or since I wrote it, that uh, it, it even is more extensive than what I had reported, um, you know, it looks to me like the CIA had been doing uh, mind control, MK Ultra, uh, Project Monarch, uh, Artichoke, you know, all these things that come mm-hmm. under the umbrella of uh, 
a mind controller, MK Ultra. Uh, for quite a while, they've been interested in um, controlling people's behavior, which is an extremely difficult thing to do. And they've been fooling around with this, and they, they started first with what everybody starts with, the, uh, people with no power, the people in prison, and uh, sometimes uh, college students on campuses and universities that need money and they'll, you know, they'll pay them, you know, with these things that go on on uh, campuses all over the United States. And uh, once they, uh, that started to catch up on them, though, uh, catch up to them. And so they, they kind of changed their venue and they, uh, they went off into cults and so forth uh, where they were doing their experimentation. Uh, and some of the places that that led are, are, are really spooky. I mean, uh, I finally got a hold of a book. Uh, some of, a lot of my research that I did, the really valuable research, were the books that had been suppressed or kept out of the United States. And uh, oftentimes they were quite expensive if you could get your hands on them. But uh, every once in a while I was, I was able to get a hold of some books that uh, largely had not been distributed, or if they had been distributed, uh, somebody had come and bought them up, uh, or suppressed publication of them, even printing them. Sometimes you'd have publishers that buy the rights to a book and then uh, refuse to print it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and things like that. One of those books was about Jamestown and yeah. uh, uh, Reverend Jones and so forth. And uh, even though I reported some of that in my book, but I found out l- later on that uh, uh, that, that was far extensive. Uh, uh, Reverend Jones was um, most likely, in fact, there's uh, overwhelming evidence, he was a CIA operative himself. And um, a master one. He uh, laid the groundwork for the Bay of Pigs invasion uh, in mm-hmm. Cuba. Uh, that is not known, and uh, the fool, even Castro, uh, all kinds of people. This guy was a—he was really a piece of work. I mean, you talk about one evil psychopath. Jones was really something, and um, mm-hmm. it looked like uh, just a thumbnail of it. That that whole Jamestown experiment. You mean Jonestown, right? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, Jonestown uh, yeah. was a—it uh, was in Guyana, and. Uh, what they had done is they had divided up, uh, you know, it was 900 and some people. Some say it was more than that, maybe 1,200 people. And uh, they had divided them up into three groups. They had a control group and two other groups that they were giving uh, psychotropic uh, drugs of some kind to. And mm-hmm. the experiment was to see uh, if they could, uh, if you could tell them, okay, well, go ahead and drink this, this cyanide if they would do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what they did, and all these people. But that sounds to me like MK MK Ultra taking, you know, offshore type of thing, and a real intense experiment yeah. done not just on one person here and there, but because that that idea of it's one thing to try and uh, to use uh, you know psychotropic or hallucinogenic drugs and hypnotism or whatever to try and get someone to be, for example, a an assassin to kill someone. 
But yeah. further down the line, the real test is not will they kill someone else, but will they kill themselves? If you can get them to kill themselves through manipulation or mind control, or whatever you want to call it, then yeah. pretty much you can get them to do anything else. Yeah, it looked to me like they were putting the groundwork in to, as bizarre as this sounds, to uh, have the wherewithal to uh, do away with uh, American blacks, African Americans. And, to do away uh, with them? Yeah, yeah, kill them. Uh, have them commit what, suicide and so forth, put them in... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, that's uh, I, as, as strange as this sounds. Well, uh, you know, it actually makes sense. I mean, when you consider some of the harebrained schemes that they come up with all the time, uh, you name it, trying to reverse global warming by capturing an asteroid and having his stuff spray around the planet, etc., etc., there are all kinds of things, I'm sure, that they think they're doing. So, for example, when they get 900 blacks into the jungle in Guyana, and they actually call it an experiment and, you know, have scientific protocol and, you know, papers to sign, and it's all very formal. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if in their mind they're thinking this will be for the greater good of removing God. a problem we have. They're just complete psychos. It's bizarre. It's not even human thinking. It's not, it's, it's, it's just non-human. There's something wrong there, you know, and maybe they're not all psychopaths involved, but they get, if there's normal humans in there, they get them to engage in this kind of behavior that is totally anti-human and it's it's horrible you know Bob, we have another call here potentially i'm gonna go with this one and sure. see uh see what we get from it hi caller what's your name where are you calling from hello caller are you there yeah how you doing i'm here man how y'all doing uh, not too bad you got a question for bob or a comment well, I'm, I'm just listening, man. I'm glad y'all are making this show known, man, because they've been trying to eliminate the, uh, the original people off this planet, man, ever since uh, uh, this 1455, man, but it's not going to work by the grace of God. So I'm enjoying the show, man. Just keep on uh, doing what y'all doing. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Take care. Maybe I have a question for you, Bob. Um, when you look at history, at least since the 18th century, you have this... Um, recurring ideas and projects, plans about eugenism, racism, genocide, often focusing on this or that specific uh, part of the population. But I'm wondering if ultimately what the goal of psychopath is, is not to get rid of a normal human being that obviously they despise. Uh. You know, I, I think Lobachevsky's comment on, uh, you know, uh, on, on what their motivation is, is um, and I think he said something like, germs don't understand mm -hmm. that they're going to be buried or cremated with the, the, the corpse that they created. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think these people just do what they do because they're psychopaths. Yeah. And um, and I, I you know I um, I think it's all about as long as they can control, uh, as long as they can intimidate, uh, scare people, and uh, terrify people, and all, you know, it makes them feel powerful. And I really don't think they think about uh, in the end they are destroying no. uh, the 
the, the sustenance of, of the planet, you know, environmental uh, concerns, they certainly don't care about. They don't care about people. I don't think they really ultimately care about themselves uh, other than just uh, the immediate gain that they have right there, and they're unable to see the consequences or the uh, ramifications of what they do. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, that's actually a much scarier proposition or presentation of the problem than the idea that they're just, uh, they're kind of evil people with a very definite plan. Because uh, at least in, the, in that second, uh, if, if they're evil people with a plan, at least they're in control and at least they have some kind of awareness or there's some sense, even if it's twisted, there's some sense and they're going somewhere and ultimately people would rationalize it as well. They may be evil, but you know they're not they're not they're not going to kill us all you know they 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 understand that they need us at least and that kind of stuff but what you just described bob is that essentially it's people who are probably the closest definition to insanity that there is you know they don't take stock of facts they don't take stock of reality they just make it up as they go along and it's all fueled by their own just insatiable greed and that is ultimately going to really it's going to run the entire planet into the ground and and they'll just hold up their hands at the end and say oh i don't know how'd that happen you know i mean it's it's horrible it's like there's nobody driving you know i think you're exactly right i think that uh, that is what's going on and um and that um ultimately you know, I think Lobachevsky pointed that out pretty well. Is that, you know, along with these people are the character paths that do their dirty work, and they're probably psychologically normal, but they, um, you know, a false sense of loyalty. You see, you see all these people when they get caught, they say, well, you know, I was the president of the United States, and I just. Uh, I love that guy, and uh, whatever I had to do, what he wanted, I knew it was wrong, or whatever. But the um, all of these people, these character paths, and, and the whole bunch of them that uh, that are leading us in that direction, uh, they eventually they screw up uh, because they're stupid. For one thing, they don't have any foresight. They don't understand people. They don't understand the ramifications of their disastrous decisions. And they end up collapsing the thing, and uh, Lobachevsky pointed that out, you know, throughout history, yeah. and that uh, it eventually goes back to normal people who are pretty good leaders and so forth. After uh, all the destruction and millions of people killed and so forth, uh, and then that cycle starts all over again. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I think that's what's happening. I think uh, they'll screw up the planet bad enough where they'll be out of power. Yeah. And uh, perhaps maybe we uh, we will find a way to not have these, this cycle go uh, over and over again. But you look at the economic models, you look at the environmental models, and I've looked at them carefully. Uh, we're in serious trouble in this century. And yeah. uh, this planet, I mean, I, I, I'm seeing some figures like uh, 2.5% less food being produced every 10 years mm-hmm. uh, than That's in the past. Now, yeah, and we have 7 billion people on the planet, and there are going to be billions of more 
and you're going to have less food and more people, this is not going to work. And you've got a bunch Something's of cyclists trying to manage that. Yeah, it, um, it, it will, it's not sustainable. And uh, there was somebody pretty smart that said things that can't go on forever don't go on forever. Yeah. And this is where we're at. We're using fossil fuels at a rate unprecedented. There's been nothing like this uh, in history. And, um, and, and we've been convinced that we have to do that. Fossil fuels is the only energy out there. Turns out that the whole, all the reserves of gas and oil and all this stuff all added together is one twenty thousandth of the available energy that we could use. This is ridiculous, and they've got us believing that you have to have it, that you can't use anything else. Mm-hmm. That, um, now, you know, like alcohol, you and I could put a still together in the backyard and run our car off of that. I mean, we could do mm-hmm. that, but I can't drill a hole in the ground uh, and pump this stuff out. I can't do that. That's why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and that's, that's only an example but uh, and got us convinced that uh, that it has to be that way. The guy, uh, I think it was Rudolph Diesel or something. He, his idea was to uh, run his engine off of uh, renewable uh, oil, uh, you know, soybean oil and things like that, which, uh, which uh, does not add carbon uh, to the uh, to the atmosphere. Uh, it uses available carbon out of the atmosphere in the form of plants, and you use the plant and you put the carbon back, but uh, you don't have a net gain of carbon in your atmosphere. That was his idea, and that's what he wanted to do. He ended up uh, on a vacation. He gets dumped off the back of a cruise ship, hmm. happiest he's ever been in his life, and they say he committed suicide. He jumped off a cruise ship. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, Henry Ford talked about uh, and, in fact, he wanted to use, uh, I think it was alcohol. Yeah, Henry Ford wanted to use alcohol uh, to r- run vehicles and things like this. And he said he fought with these people for seven years, and he, he just uh, he couldn't have I mean, Henry Ford was not a real nice guy either. But, uh, but he did, uh, he had some pretty good ideas. And, um, and he could not uh, do that. Now, you know, and, and why can't you and I make a still in the backyard? It's illegal, that's why. Uh, and there's a reason for it. And it's not because, well, you know, your revenue or whatever, uh, drinking's bad for your health, you can make alcohol out of it. It's because uh, you can't put a meter on it. And uh, mm-hmm. you can't charge people for it and so forth. And you can oil out of the ground in Iraq or whatever. Uh, you can charge them whatever you want because it's uh, you you've got control of it. It's J.P. Morgan and all those associated boys that control that, and, uh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's where we're at. And that's not a sustainable model. And these people could care less. They have throughout history thought that they would not be the um, uh, held accountable for their disastrous decisions. They give lip service to sustainability tell all of us we must be green, etc. While they pillage the planet at an ever more ferocious rate, more wars, more occupations, more oil extraction, etc. Yeah, it, um, I don't even watch this stuff, but I, an uncle of mine that follows uh, the stock market and all this kind of thing, and I think it was 
um, CNBC or something like that where they have all these stocks and whatever. You should have heard these people talking about these pipelines and things and fracking and everything. It was like uh, uh, people opposed to that or some kind of are, are, are insane, you know. This, this is crazy. We're blowing up our um, aquifers and he's mixing oil with water. I, I saw a program and this guy turned on his faucet and he actually took a lighter and lit it on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw that. <laughs> Pardon? Well, actually, yeah, well, we saw this, uh, this footage. Actually, the, seemingly the psychopaths are treating the planet the way they're treating uh, human beings. Well, there's no notion of uh, empathy, respect, sustainability, balance. It's all about greed and exploitation without any uh, long-term vision. Yep. That's what we've been saying. Yeah, it's greed. It's unfettered, insatiable greed that is really un- inhuman in the sense that it's not natural to human beings. These are like a different, they're different species almost essentially, but they're in human form and that's one of the major problems. They walk, talk and quack like a, like a normal human and in fact some of them do it much better than the average normal human. They can pass themselves off in that way, but uh, behind it all they're lacking something that makes the rest of us truly human and it's uh, empathy and observation of objective reality and acceptance of objective reality and reaction to that uh, where these guys just like uh, as um, the, the Bush insider, White House insider was uh, quoted back in, uh, in 2004 where he said that they were reality creators and that the rest of us would just have to sit back and watch while they create reality. Um, that's the, that's the essence of it, you know. And look at the reality they created. Uh, Bob, we kind of got to the top of the hour here. We've actually run over the time that we said we'd, we'd keep you here. So uh, we don't want to keep you too much longer, or, or even ourselves, because it's getting late here. <clears throat> but I just want to, again, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for uh, for your book. I mean, I suppose... What we, I don't know, maybe I'll leave the last kind of word to you. Uh, what, what, if anything, can we do about this? One thing I would say is kind of read, read books like yours that really paint the picture of where we're at and, and can maybe galvanize people to maybe do something about it. Do you have any other uh, magic wands to solve this problem? I, I think it's going to be a long process. I mean, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you folks having me on here. This has been a real pleasure. And, um, the people that called in and, uh, and yeah. shared some of these things, you know, it. Uh, what was it, uh, Elvira? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I uh, you know, I don't doubt that she's had, you know. Yeah, the stuff going on. Her. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it might have been a, a long time ago. I would have said, no, that's not possible, or something mm-hmm. else. But. Um, but the thing I've run think. into, I don't, I don't doubt her for a minute or anybody else that called in, and I really appreciate the folks that uh, are okay. listening out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, thank you guys for uh, illuminating, you know, some of the, the book. I always like that, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, well, I really thank appreciate you for being it. with us. Bob, Bob, the book Can is I called Amer- a book is called American Heart of Darkness, uh, Volume One. The transformation of the American Republic into a pathocracy. Are you planning a volume two? Oh yeah, yeah. That, and that one's going to be American Heart of Darkness, and it's going to be 
macrosocial evil in the post-JFK era. Cool. That sounds um, awesome. That sounds brilliant. Pricey. First one, I want to get into more what what can we do about it. Okay. And uh, I think there are a lot of things, but I uh, we're out of time. But I, I think that uh, realizing, empowering ourselves, you know, something like uh, what Desmond Tutu said, uh, is that we have to make a decision that we want to be free. Mm-hmm. And we can't do anything until we do that. Mm-hmm. And I think once we make that decision as a people, and not as a black person or a Hispanic person or a white, you know, somebody has, uh, has uh, you know, like we were talking about the, the guy that we were, you know, that his DNA went back to Africa, and his name was McPherson, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where, <laughs> you know, there are people named Kirkconnell that are my relatives all over the world that in this country... You would say this one's Hispanic and this one's black and this one's this yeah. and that. Most of them are in South America and Cuba and uh, Cayman Islands and so forth. And right within my family, you know, you, you can see one of them might be blue-eyed and one of them's got curly hair and dark and all that. No, this guy didn't come from Africa and that one from uh, Scotland. This mm-hmm. ridiculous stuff. We're one people. And, um, and as soon as we realize that and work together and quit blaming each other, Mm-hmm. Uh, for what these psychopaths have done to us, and start uh, working together and make that decision that we want to be free, um, it, the rest will be easy. I think Desmond Tutu is absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good note to, to end the show on. Um, it's uh, again the book. The book's name for people to listen is American Heart of Darkness. Transformation of the American Republic into a Pathocracy. Bob also has his own radio show here on Blog Talk Radio. It's called uh, American Heart of Darkness Radio, I think. Uh, on Blog Talk, yeah. just search for that term. Uh, you can check him out whenever uh, whenever he's doing his next show. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Bob. And um, You can also check out our forum thread on this book where absolutely. we're having a discussion about the mm-hmm. book. And uh, obviously it's going to history, psychology, and... It's uh, been a really interesting discussion. discussion we've had with Bob. Yeah. Um, Bob, as soon as your book is ready, you let us know, and we'll have you back on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thank and you good, so much, Joe. Good luck for the writing here, of the volume Jason. two. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. All right, listeners. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. All right, listeners, that's the end of it um, for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back next week with a show as yet to be announced, but you know where it'll appear. So check it out. Until then, have a good day. Take care. Bye bye.